Well, um, however you are and whenever you are uh, watching this, I want to encourage you to do so with your Bibles open. Uh, we want to dive into God's Word this morning, so I want to invite you to go ahead, grab your Bible, or open your app, whatever you're using, and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I want to begin by reading from Romans chapter 8. We're only going to be looking at two verses this morning, verses 12 and 13, but I want to back up and get a bit of the context I want to read from verse 9 all the way through verse 13. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. This is the inspired Word of God. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And here's our text for this morning. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In Christianity, the pathway to true life is death. There is a kind of life that leads to death, but there is a kind of death that leads to life. And to be a Christian, you actually must embrace this reality of death on a variety of different fronts. You see, to be a Christian, you must believe in a God who died for you, who was killed for you in your place as a substitute for your sin. Paul has told us in Romans chapter 6 that you must die, so to speak, by union with Him. His death must actually become your death. You must be baptized into His death. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. We are called by Jesus Himself to daily pick up our cross and to follow Him. This instrument of death is supposed to be something that we embrace every day, daily dying to ourself. Paul in Galatians 5.24 says this, that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And Paul tells us right here in this passage that we're looking at this morning that if we are truly in Christ, death doesn't stop for us in this life. We are actually to become expert executioners, skilled assassins. As Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan, wrote hundreds of years ago, we must kill sin before sin kills us. We are a people who are bent on killing sin. That is the call of Scripture. That is the call of the Apostle Paul through the Spirit of God on our lives today. This is, in fact, killing sin, one of the most defining marks of a Christian's life. It is one of the greatest evidences of the power of the Spirit of God in your life and in my life. If we truly belong to Christ, we are killing sin. So here is the natural question. How do I kill sin in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ? 
How do I kill sin in my life? That's what I want to answer this morning from this text. The first way we do this is to live consciously aware of who we are. That's what Paul drives first at here in verse 12. So then, brothers, again, speaking to Christians, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. The language he used here reminds us of some identity markers in our lives. The idea of, of being a debtor to something or someone we owe sin nothing, he says. We, we are no longer a debtor to sin. It holds nothing over us any longer. The, the flesh, that is to say the sinful nature that we all have apart from Jesus Christ, it no longer rules over us and makes us obey it. Sin was our, our master apart from Christ. That's what the Bible teaches and the problem with our, our debt to sin is that it's ever-increasing. We just keep on sinning and sinning and sinning, and Paul's already addressed this in the book of Romans. We're storing up wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. But it's not only ever-increasing, it's ever-demanding. Sin is relentless in its demand. One sin is never enough. It always wants more. It keeps pulling you down its path of destruction. And here's the problem with sin and the flesh. It's everlasting apart from Christ. The wages of sin is death. Eternal death and separation from God. But you see what he says here to, to, to us who are followers of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, since you have believed the gospel, you're not obliged to obey the sinful nature any longer. It doesn't have that power over you. Now, it needs to be said that if you're not a Christian, then the Bible actually affirms that you are a debtor to the flesh. It is ruling you, even now in this moment, whether you realize it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, it is ruling you. Your sinful nature owns and controls you, and one day, if you do not turn to Jesus, it will ruin you. You need to be delivered by Jesus. That's what Paul has been preaching in the book of Romans. This whole book is, is a book about the gospel and about the grace of God. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, he says, for all who believe. This is why Jesus came. The good news of the gospel isn't, isn't that you can become a better person. It's that you can become a new person. The good news of the gospel isn't that you can just simply make some life changes and feel better about yourself. It's that you can be transformed from the inside out. And the good news of the gospel is that you can actually be saved from your sin, from the punishment you deserve. You can be removed from its power and its penalty. This is what the gospel accomplishes for every follower of Jesus Christ. And the result of that is this newness of life, this belonging to God, and, and the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, a new power over your life, a new ability to fight sin and to put it to death. You see, what we needed most in the gospel was for somebody to cover our debt to pay it in full, and that's exactly what Jesus has done. Paul writes in Colossians 2 that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This, it says, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He took your certificate of debt, everything you owed, all of your sin and shame and guilt, all of the condemnation you deserved, and he took that debt and he nailed it to the cross and he paid it in full on your behalf. Now you are liberated from its power, no longer obliged to obey it. But the implication, the implication of the text, though it's not stated explicitly, the implication is that you're actually now a debtor to someone else, to the one who has redeemed you, the one who has purchased you, the one who now owns you, the one to whom you belong is the one to whom you now owe your life, your very existence. He is the one that you now serve. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, that you are bought with a price. And he goes on to say that the implication of this is that so now honor God, glorify God in your body, with your body, in this life. Live for Him. Don't live for sin. We are debtors to grace, not debtors to sin. And this is not not some kind of a painful debt to repay. And we're not repaying God in any way. This is like, you saved me, I owe you everything, and now it's my joy to follow you and to serve you. The first step in killing sin is to live, listen, Christian, is to live with this acute awareness of who you are. You see, when you realize who you are, you realize that you are not hopeless in this battle against sin, and yet I fear that so many Christians live in this place of defeat and discouragement. I can't do it. We live in Romans 7. We stay in Romans 7 where we don't do the things we want to do, and we do the things we don't want to do, and we feel like we're never getting out of that spot. We're never making strides. We live as hopeless Christians, and that's the exact opposite of what the Scriptures teach us. They teach us that we do have hope, we can have hope, and we are not to live as hopeless Christians in the midst of this battle against sin. You also realize that you can't be complacent in this battle against sin, and I fear this is where many Christians live, in this spiritual lethargy and complacency, apathetic towards their sin and towards God and towards righteousness. We flirt with sin, we play with sin, but we do not kill sin. We think that we can kind of cozy up to sin, and we think we can kind of stay neutral in our spiritual lives and coast along when God says that we must be pursuing Him. We realize that we no longer have an obligation to sin, but we do have an obligation to kill it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher, and he wrote a massive commentary series on the book of Romans. He went through it in something like nine years. I promise you we will not be that long. But his commentary was so helpful for me this week. It was, it was such a blessing, and it really stirred my own heart. I want to read to you some parts of it. I've condensed some things, but here's what he says. He says, the Scripture says this, realize the truth about yourself. Cease to say that you're absolutely hopeless, for that is not true of you. You are born again. The life of God is in you. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, and He is almighty. Go on doing your work, he says, and by that he means go on killing sin. And he gives this really helpful illustration that's been really kind of stirring my mind this week. He says this, that the church is not primarily a hospital 
or a casualty clearing station. In, in other words, he's, he, he's afraid that Christians sometimes were very prone to think, you know what, the church is just a hospital. We're all a bunch of sick, weak people lying helplessly on a gurney. And he says in one sense, like, listen, we've we got to stop thinking like that. He says instead the church is a barracks. This is, this is battle imagery. This is war imagery. He says the church is a barracks. And listen to what he says. He says, and Paul in Romans 8 is like a sergeant major commanding us to battle. He that is in you, he wants us to know, is greater than he that is in the world. And he says like this, and let me kind of paraphrase a little bit. He says, he says essentially, stand up. Let's go, church. Let's go, Christian. Let's go, follower of Jesus Christ. Stand up and march. Act like a man. Be strong and courageous in this fight against sin. No more of this lethargy. Stop your whining and complaining. Stop moaning and groaning. He says, stop talking about all of this weakness. Realize, he says, what God has done to you. Realize what you are and what he has made of you. And march, he says, with your heads held high as those who were once in the flesh, but once who once belonged to darkness, but now are lights of the world. This is so good for our, our hearts to hear. This is the rally cry of Romans 8. Stand up, Christian soldier, and start marching against the enemy of sin in your life. Realize who you are and get on with the work of killing sin. You owe nothing to the flesh. Nothing. You owe everything to Jesus Christ. Next, he says this. You want to be killing sin? Live cautiously, aware of when you are. Live cautiously aware of when you are. In verse 13, just the beginning part, listen to what he says. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. There is a warning here. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If this is the habitual pattern of your life, to live for sin and to live for the world, if that is the consuming desire and passion of your soul, you will die like I said, there, there is a kind of life that leads to death. Jesus says that way is, is broad, and there are many who are on it. The way of destruction is, is broad. That road is easy. It's the way of the world. Paul is not saying here, by the way, that genuine believers can lose their salvation. The Bible actually says repeatedly that the exact opposite is true. You, you cannot, if you're in Christ, if you're truly a child of God, you will never be lost. He will lose none out of his hand, out of his grip. He's saying that someone whose life is characterized by the things of the flesh is not a true Christian and is actually spiritually dead, regardless of what they want to say and what they even want to believe. You know a tree by its fruit. You can see the health of the tree by, by its fruit. And listen, the truth is that you can embrace the veneer of Christianity all you want. That doesn't make you a Christian. You can appreciate the ethics of Christianity. You might even want to take on the label of Christian. You can even take on some of the behaviors of Christian and the attitudes of, of a Christian, but that does not make you a Christian. Living righteously doesn't save you, but saved people do live righteously. 
This means that we, we do not live according to the flesh as a consistent pattern of our life. We cannot as a Christian. It's actually impossible to live consistently according to the flesh if you're a Christian. But this is a call to live cautiously. It is a reminder that we can actually be tempted by the flesh. We can be pulled back into sin, that we are not yet who we will one day be, and we need to actually be careful how we walk, as the Scriptures say. And the way we do that is by understanding when we are when we are in the, the plan of redemption, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but let me just remind you, we can't be foolish in our thoughts about ourselves and our sin. We are not yet in verse 11 of Romans chapter 8, where it says that uh, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. We're not yet at that place where, where we have an immortal body. We're not yet in, in that place of Romans 7 verse 24, where he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? We're not there. We haven't been delivered yet from this body of death. We're not yet in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, where Paul writes this, when the, when, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the immortal puts on immortality, then, he says, shall come to pass the saying, what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory. Where is your sting? You see, that's then. That day's coming, praise the Lord. And we ought to long for that day and look forward to that day, but we cannot forget that that is then and this is now. And in the space between then and now, we are experiencing the tension between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5:17 captures this well. Paul says this, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He captures that tension and that, that feeling that we've all experienced as, Jesus, as followers of Jesus Christ. Our fallen nature is so infected by sin that even after we're given new life, even after we are washed and sanctified and justified and united to Christ, the presence of sin remains alive in the very depths of our hearts. It's like mold in the walls of a house. Never seem to get rid of it until, listen, until this mortal body is replaced with an immortal one. J.C. Ryle, another famous pastor and, and theologian and, and commentator in his book on holiness, which I would commend to you. It's one of the, the books that has shaped my life most. He writes these words. He says, sin, no doubt, in the believer's heart has no longer dominion. It's the good news. It is checked, controlled, mortified, and crucified by the expulsive power of the new principle of grace. The life of a believer is a life of victory and not of failure. That's so, so good for us to live in. But the very struggles, he says, which go on within his bosom, the fight that he finds it needful to fight daily, the watchful jealousy which he is obliged to exercise over his inner man, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, the inward groanings which no one knows but he who has experienced them, all of these, he says, all testify to the same great truth, all show the enormous power and vitality of sin. Mighty indeed must that foe be who even even when crucified, is still alive. 
But he doesn't stop there. Here's the best part, okay? I'm going to put this part on the screen because it's so, so important for us to get this this morning. He goes on to say, happy is the believer who understands it. And while he rejoices in Christ Jesus, has no confidence in the flesh. And while he says, thanks be to God who give us the victory, never forgets to watch and pray lest he fall into temptation. There it is. There it is. There, there, there is a perfect illustration of what it is to live when we live in this tension, cautiously aware of what's going on around us. And I, I want to frame it like this. Listen, there is, there's a need for caution in our lives if we're going to kill sin. Because, you see, in order to kill sin, we need to know our enemy or our enemies. And here he describes the flesh, which should help us think through this idea of the great enemies that we face in the Christian life. The, the Bible actually describes our three great enemies in this way. It describes um, the world, the devil, and the flesh. Those are the three great enemies the Christian has. And, and the Bible actually, in, in some really kind of unique and nuanced ways, describes each of our enemies in the Christian life like a lion. I want you to kind of think of that imagery for a moment because I think that helps us get this, get this sense of, of caution, at least I hope it does. You see, if you knew that a lion was constantly lurking around you, how would you live? I hope your answer is cautiously. This is not the Tiger King. This is real life where we need to be aware of what's going on at all times. Lions, listen, are deadly predators. By the way, this is not a call to live in fear. That's not what this is, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. This is a call to live cautiously. Lions are deadly predators, and the moment that you forget that a lion is a lion, the chances are you're with Jesus. This is what happens. You're dead. They destroy. They devour and you see, the Bible describes our enemies like a lion, and I think the, part of the intentionality is this built-in illustration of, of warning us to be careful and to be cautious. Consider this for a moment. The world is like a lion. The world is like a lion. And by the world, I mean the, the world system. That's what, that's what the Scriptures talk about. The way this world operates in a way that is antagonistic to the God who created it. The Bible draws actually a distinction between um, what Augustine has, has called the city of God and the city of man, and that's very biblical language. These two worlds, these two cities exist at the same time. The Scriptures teach that if you're a Christian, you're actually a citizen of heaven, but you're living in the city of man, the world. The Bible uses the, 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 the city of Babylon. You're probably familiar with that term, the city of Babylon. And, and that word, that city Babylon, actually in Scriptures is an archetype for the world system. It, it becomes a kind of a metaphor for the world system, for just the world in general. Babel was not a place the people of God wanted to live. It was a place where they were exiled because of their judgment from God, punishment for sin. They were dragged off into exile in Babylon. But, but notice this. Listen, the word Babylon actually has its roots all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. 
So it forms for us this framework or, or this, this ideology of thinking about the world. You see, at Babel and then the city of Babylon, what we see again is, is, is people and a culture and a world and a government that are antagonistic to the authority of God, right? They rebel against God. They embrace everything that God hates, and they will not bow the knee to God. That is what the city of man is like. But you see throughout Scripture, we see that Babylon is actually alluring. It's attractive. This world has a way of, of sucking us in. It panders to our flesh. It panders to our sinful nature and desires. It's characterized in the book of Revelation... Babylon is by sexual immorality and luxurious living. That's the world we live in. First Peter, we're reminded that we as Christians are exiles, and, and he says this near the end of First Peter in First Peter chapter 5, that actually that, that, that the world is Babylon, that the world we're living in now is Babylon. We're exiles living amidst a sinful people, rebellious towards God, and we must be cautious while we live here. It's really fascinating, listen, that the lion is actually a symbol for Babylon. Babylon, the destroyer of nations and the seed of false religion that would seek to entice God's people into idolatry. Daniel 7 references Babylon. Daniel in his, his vision, Babylon is depicted with the symbol of a lion with eagle's wings. And it's so fascinating that archaeological digs all over the ancient world, they've, they've unearthed and, and found many ancient relics from the city of Babylon. And all over the place, we find this symbol of a lion with eagle's wings. The point is this, the world system is like a lion. It is seeking to control you. It's seeking to drag you away from allegiance to God and tempting you to bow the knee to idols. Are you aware, Christian, are you aware of how much hold this world actually has on your life? Are you aware of how tempted you are to be dragged into the thinking of this world, the, the belief systems of this world, the behaviors of this world that are in opposition to those of a Christ follower. Let me ask you this, Christian. Are you feasting more on the pleasures of this world than you are on the pleasures of Jesus Christ? Are you filling your mind more with entertainment and messaging from this world and the desires of this world more than you are from the Word of God? Are you cautious about the many ways this world is trying to pull you away from worship of the Creator towards worship of the creation. The devil is a lion. And this one is abundantly clear. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter writes these words, be sober-minded, be watchful. Again, be cautious. Be careful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is not some kind of a, a cuddly kitten. He's a ferocious lion. If you give him a ball of yarn, he'll strangle you with it. And you notice, if you read through the, the, the next verse in verse 9 of, of 1 Peter 5, do you notice how you're supposed to respond to the devil? It says this, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him. Don't give in to him. Don't rebuke him. Don't talk to him. Resist him. 
He's going after your mind, by the way. This is the way that spiritual warfare predominantly works in people's lives. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, right? He is going after the mind, which is why we are called in our spiritual warfare to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Satan wants you to believe things that aren't true. Satan wants you to believe that sin is better. Sin is so much better than following Jesus Christ, than obedience to him. Satan wants you to believe that your identity is wrapped up in who you are, what you make of yourself, in your career, in money, in possessions. He wants you to believe things that are going to keep you from seeing, listen, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and running to him for repentance and repentance for forgiveness of sins and true life in him. He doesn't want you to have that life. And when you do have that life, he wants to try and steal the joy of that life from you. He wants to drag you back into sin. Resist him. It's like a lion. Lastly, listen to this, the flesh is like a lion. The flesh is like a lion. Our sin nature is like a lion living inside of us. It's so fascinating that after the fall of Adam and Eve, the very first sin we read about is the murder of Cain killing his brother Abel. But if you remember that story, you'll you'll probably remember this. If you're a Christian, you probably know this, that that God actually comes alongside Cain before he kills Abel. In Genesis 4, verse 7, listen to what he says, sin is crouching at the door. Do you hear the built-in illustration there? It's crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. It's contrary to you. It wants to rule over you. But, he says, you must rule over it. You see, sin wants you. It's seeking you. The flesh is the the greatest enemy you face. It's ready to pounce and devour you. If you give it an inch, it'll take a mile every time. God describes sin like a a deadly predator, like a lion crouching just before it takes its prey by the throat and destroys it. Listen, every moment of every day, your fallen nature, your sinful nature, is wanting to seize you and control you through your passions and desires, through anger, listen, every day, through anger, through lust, through envy, through covetousness, through a whole host of sinful desires, which is why every day you must be aware of when you are. We have not yet arrived in glory. This mortal body has not yet put on immortality. And so in this time, in this space, we live cautiously, not giving in to the desires of the flesh, We are saved, but not yet saved. As I mentioned before, we're that half-rescued person. While we live in this tension, we wrestle against that indwelling presence of sin. We wrestle against the the devil, and we wrestle against this world system. We can and often do give in, and there's grace for those who do. But we need to heed the call of the Scripture this morning to be killing sin, or it will kill us. If we're going to kill sin, lastly, we must live combatively aware of whose we are. Notice what he says at the end of verse 13. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, he's, he's talking here about the marks of somebody who has the life of Christ within them, of someone who knows the saving power of Jesus Christ, who has the Spirit of God. Here is the evidence, listen, here is the 
evidence that you are in Christ. Here's the evidence that you are truly saved. Here is the hope of security that you have, that you are as a consistent pattern in your life. Listen, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, walking in righteousness, not perfectly. Listen, even Paul himself in Philippians 3 said he's not, he, he's not perfect, but he's striving. He's pressing on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This isn't talking about the perfection of your life. It's simply talking about the direction of your life. Putting to death the deeds of the body. Did you catch that word, body? He, he transitions back to the, the idea of the body. And, and again, you say, why does he do that? Because the body, that term highlights that continuing struggle against sin. It continues to remind us when we're living that we're not yet in that immortal body where we will one day, listen, no longer struggle with any sinful desire, any sinful impulse, no sinful behavior or action, never, not once. And so we put sin to death. We, we kill sin. And by the way, this is active. It's aggressive. It is combative. This isn't this kind of a passive approach to Christianity. Way too many Christians kind of embrace this false, listen, theology of fighting sin. You simply let go and let God. Oh, I just need to believe more in the gospel and somehow my sin will just go away. That is not what Paul calls us to here. This is aggressively attacking our sin. It is destroying it with the power of God. J.C. Ryle, again, he wrote these words, in justification, that is, our salvation being made right with God, the word to be addressed to man is believe, only believe, that's how you're saved. In sanctification, that is, in spiritual growth, he says the word must be watch, pray, and fight. What God has divided, he says, let us not mingle or confuse. Don't get confused about the Christian life. It is hard. It, it is, we, we discipline our body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. We make it our slave. We bring our body into subjection to the power of Jesus Christ. We do not let our sinful flesh take over or dominate over the power of the Spirit of God. That is ludicrous for the Christian to embrace that kind of an idea. We're like the athlete who rigorously disciplines our body so that we can run the race set before us. In the work of killing sin, we're not passive, waiting for it to be done to us or waiting for it to be done for us. On the contrary, we are responsible for putting evil to death. It's something we must do and doesn't happen automatically. Now, I want you to notice this happens only by the Spirit, only by the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he said this, the power is given with the command. It comes to us through the Spirit. It is God who is at work within us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is not behavior modification. This is divine, supernatural transformation you see, apart from the Spirit's supernatural power, we could never succeed in putting to death the reoccurring sin in our lives. It wouldn't be possible. If we were left to our own resources, the struggle with sin would simply be, listen, flesh trying to conquer flesh, and it would be sin compounding upon sin. But with the Holy Spirit, we have been given the power to defeat sin and find increasing victory over it in our lives. The believer's life, listen, sanctification, it's like riding a bike uphill, okay? It's hard work. But listen, the moment you stop pedaling, you start drifting backwards. 
but God has given us the power to keep pushing forward. How do we do this in our lives? I just want to give you five very quick thoughts to maybe just stir up some application in your life even today as you're thinking about maybe sins that you know you're struggling with, you know that you've wrestled with for years. Maybe you've been hopeless or despairing. Maybe you've just been complacent today, but you know it's time to get after sin. Where do you start? Here's where you start first. Be repentant over sin. All true change in the Christian life begins here with humility and repentance. Acknowledging that you have sinned against, rebelled against God. Your sin is against Him and Him alone primarily. It all begins here, this place of brokenness. Brokenness and contrition before the Lord. He blesses. He will not despise it. That is how we begin the process of drawing near to God. And by the way, if you realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior today, you say, where do I start? The first place you start is right here. This was the call in Peter's first sermon. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe in Jesus. Let godly sorrow lead you to repentance. A turning away from your sin. Secondly, be ruthless with your sin. You have to have this commitment in your life, and there has to be evidence of this in your life. You cannot flirt with sin. You cannot play with sin. You cannot embrace sin. You must be ruthless with your sin, hacking it to pieces. We are going to war against sin, living a life combating sin, dealing with it decisively, definitively. Jesus talks about it like this. If your left or your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Again, metaphorically speaking, do whatever it takes to decisively deal with that sin in your life, that the source of sin, the way that you're tempted by that sin, remove those things, cut it off completely. John Owen said this in his book, The Mortification of Sin, which, by the way, that's such a great word uh, for killing sin. It's an old school word, hundreds of years old, but it, it just packs such a punch. The mortification of sin. He said, since it is our duty to mortify sin, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leave striking before the other cease living, he does but half his work. In other words, if you start going at your sin, but you stop before it's dead, listen, you've only done half the job. Keep running that blade through sin over and over until there's no life left in it. Be ruthless with your sin. Next, be running from sin. Don't, don't think you can carry fire on your lap and not get burned. Don't think you can just kind of edge yourself up to the line of sin and think you're going to be okay. Think you're not going to fall. Too many Christians are, are asking that question, how close can I get to sin without, without actually doing it? And we need to learn to ask the question, how far away can I stay from sin so I don't get too close to it? Flee sexual immorality. That's one of the commands. Flee. Get away from it. Run like Joseph away from Potiphar's wife. But here's the question I have for you in this regard. Are you self-aware enough today to know what temptations you're facing? Where are you most prone to fall? What sins are clinging closely to you today? What are the things that if not checked or not dealt with have the propensity to bring you down at any given moment of time? And be careful if you think you're standing strong. No temptation to seize you except what is common to man. Know where you're prone to be tempted. 
Next, be replacing your sin. Again, it's not just enough to stop. We know this. We need to put off the old man, but we must be putting on the new man. We must be running back to the Word of God to put on who we are in Christ. We must practically become, listen, through effort and intentionality, who we positionally already are in Christ. We must fight to put on those righteous virtues that are contrasted with those sinful vices. Lastly, be resting in your Savior. I know we're talking about doing a lot here, and we must talk about doing a lot, but I don't want to remove this. This is perhaps the most important point in this kind of how-to step. This is about cultivating intimacy with Jesus. It's about finding your rest and your peace and your satisfaction in Him alone. We worship, you know, D.A. Carson has famously said, we worship our way into sin, we must worship our way out of sin. Sin is a fundamental, fundamentally a worship disorder. And if it's worship that drives us into sin, we need to understand that it's worship of Jesus that is going to draw us out. And a heart, listen, I don't care what you do, how hard you want to fight against sin, if you are not a person who is cultivating a deep, devotional, um, intimate life with Jesus, you are going to experience failure after failure in the Christian life because it is worshiping Christ. Listen, so glorify God in your body. Do you hear that? The heart of that statement is a heart that longs to bring glory to God, to worship Him above all, to be pleasing to Him, to make sure that His name is not diminished or defamed in any way, shape, or form, that every action of every day strives to exalt and magnify the name of Jesus, the name above all names. This is fundamentally a worship issue in our hearts. You see, being controlled by God's Spirit, which is what we must be, Spirit-controlled believers, it comes from us being obedient worshipers of Jesus Christ, obedient to His Word, knowing His will for us and loving it deeply. The Spirit-filled life does not come, listen, through mystical or ecstatic experiences, but from the studying and submitting to the Scriptures, to the Word of God, letting Him rule over us, His authority over our lives. And as we faithfully and submissively saturate our mind and our heart with God's truth, listen, spirit-controlled living follows. This requires, church, listen, the Word of God to dwell richly, deeply within us. When our minds are under God's control, our behavior will inevitably be as well. We have three lions that seek to devour us, but you know the hope that we have, church? is we have one lion that has overcome them all. In Revelation 5, verse 5, John is seeing his vision, and in it he he sees a scroll that cannot be opened by any man, and he starts to weep, for no one in heaven or on earth is worthy to open the scroll. But then one of the elders comes to him in this vision and says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. and He is worthy to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, his name is Jesus Christ. 
He is our king. He is our master. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is the lion who conquered sin and death. Our greatest enemy has been overcome, and now, listen, Paul will tell us later in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And if that is true, let us stand up and fight. Let us go to battle against sin, and let the Spirit of God bring us to victory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would indeed give us increasing degrees of victory over sin in our lives. Now, Father, we, we would see our love of sin and our falling into sin a daily decreasing and diminishing as we draw near to you, as we commit and consecrate ourselves to you, as we surrender to your authority and your lordship in our life, as we mortify the deeds of the body, as we kill sin. We acknowledge, Lord, that all of this is only possible because of your grace, because of your mercy, and because of your power. All of this is only possible because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. All of this is possible because we are temples of the living God. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So God, help us to glorify you in our body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.